Some of you may know that Carolyn and I have a new puppy. He was 10 weeks old last Wednesday. And if you get close to me, you'll see scratches and punctures all over my arms and hands. And uh, uh, But this puppy is teaching me a lot of things. For example, I learned uh, how to keep him from barking in the front yard. Put him in the backyard. <clears throat> because he has a mind of his own, and uh, there's no changing his mind. The other thing I learned was how to meet your neighbors. You know, we walk down the street with this pup, and he's on a he's on a retractable leash. So he goes out about 20 feet, and he runs, and he jumps. He lands sometimes on his back, and sometimes on his snoot, and sometimes other ways. And people look out the window and say, look at the new puppy. And they come out to talk to me, and I talk theology, and... Talk about God and talk. Here's a new way of evangelism. Get a puppy and it'll work. He is a character. He's a galoot is what he is. Well, take out your outline. And um, I appreciate these outlines. I appreciate Lisa and Marsha. And they're getting these outlines ready for us. Uh, they're an important part of what we do here every Sunday. And um, we're going to be dealing only with two verses of Scripture this morning, the last two verses in the book of Galatians. But I think they are important verses. And remember, the Apostle Paul is writing the whole last paragraph of Galatians in his own hand. And remember... He does that in large letters, and maybe that's because he has trouble seeing. That's a possibility. But I am of the strong opinion he wants to draw emphasis to this last paragraph, and um, because that's normally what would be done in ancient Koine Greek. So, um, so we're going to take a look at these last two verses before we begin Let's bow together and pray together. Our Father, thank you today for Galatians. We, we have learned a lot of things in this book, but above all is the fact that we are saved by your grace. It's not anything we have done. It's not anything we could do. We are saved purely because you extended grace to us. And so, Father, as we come uh, this morning, we come thanking you for your grace and for this book that articulates once and for all the grace of God. And, Father, as we spend these moments together in only two verses of Scripture, which would seem on the surface to not really say all that much, we pray that you will guide us and lead us, Father, each of us, into our own specific relationship with you. What you want to say to me, Father, is what I care about. Uh, we want you to speak to each of us. 
where we need to be spoken to. And uh, as we study this, we pray that you will do that. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice the first thing that I say on your outline is that God's authority is never changing. It is always constant. And what I mean by that is that God's truth doesn't change. The Galatians have to know that because they decided they wanted to view salvation differently, they have to know that God wasn't going to view it differently because they wanted to view it differently. Sometimes I think we look at pieces of life and we say, this is the way that life looks. And um, I want to view it one way, but God has a truth about that piece of life. And God is not going to change his truth to meet my expectations. Um, I was interested to find out that there was a survey taken and 70% of the people who took the survey said that they believe there is a God, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, and that he is every place. But only 60% of the people who took the survey said they believe in an absolute truth. And I think that if we conclude that there is no absolute truth, then we are left to our own demise. Uh, Augustine once said, when regard for truth has been broken down or even slightly weakened, all things remain doubtful. In other words, if there is no absolute truth, everything is up in the air. If there's no absolute truth, then you can make anything mean anything you want it to mean and get away with it. And so the result is, is that my point here is that God has truth and he doesn't change it. Therefore, when a change is necessary, we have to look here and not to God. So whenever a change, of course, is required, we better be prepared to make the correction on our end, not on God's end, because God is not going to change his truth to meet my expectations. Winston Churchill once said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up, brush themselves off, and hurry off as if nothing happened. And I fear that sometimes that's the way we are when we study the scriptures. I fear that the truth hits us smack in the face and we walk off as though nothing has happened. And we want to understand that God is going to have his truth. And the Galatians had to understand that. Grace is a truth of God. We cannot escape it. We cannot change it. So uh, you have to understand Paul is kind of broken down here. Paul is, uh, Paul is tired. He's weary. And when you get re- weary, you get a little less tolerant sometimes. You get more direct. You get abrupt and you get quick. And you get to the point faster. And that's what Paul does. And in a sense, he's saying, hear me well. 
I have earned the right to be heard and to be obeyed. Now, the interesting thing is, is that you'll see by the time we get to the end of the message this morning, that Paul isn't saying, I've earned the right because I have apostolic authority. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have earned the right because I have been a servant of Jesus Christ. And he says, I bear the marks of that. And that's where we're going to go. So let's do a little review of the book so that we get caught up here a little bit and uh, uh, draw us then to these last two verses. And a review of the book can be seen in four phrases. The first one is found in chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, I am amazed. I am amazed. Uh, you know, we, uh, we use certain words frequently. Uh, sometimes when I listen to people, I hear them use certain words frequently, and they use them because they're part of the vocabulary, not because they really know what they mean or because they want to put that meaning on there. I remember years ago, I used the word incredible all the time. Man, that's incredible. One time, a friend of mine, Dr. Ron Allen, came up to me and he said, do you know what incredible means? I said, "Uh, I guess. He said, it means it's not credible. And and you look at the scriptures and say, boy, that's incredible. (laughs) And so... We do the same thing with amazed. Paul says, I'm amazed. What he's really saying, and the word that he uses here, means I'm shocked. I'm blown away. I'm astonished. I'm stunned, Paul says. And the thing that he's saying is, I'm stunned to think that you would leave the original gospel, which came to you by the grace of God, and turn to the law again as to getting saved. Paul says, I cannot believe it. So he judges them in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And then he gives a clear statement of the gospel in verses 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 1. And he defines the gospel once and for all as something that they received only by the grace of God. The second phrase is this one. Who has bewitched you? In chapter 3, verse 1. Bewitched. Uh, Boskino is the word. And it's used only here in the entire New Testament. And it does have the idea of putting evil upon a person or a thing. And that's why I think most of the translators translate this word bewitched. But he actually is talking about their thinking ability. He's not saying they're dumb. That's not what the word means. He's not saying they're dull. That's not what the word means. He's saying they actually have the ability to think and reason, and they choose not to use that ability. That's what this word means, boskino. That's what this word means. He, he, it's as though he's saying, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? How many parents are here? 
Yeah, you chuckle because you know. How many times have we said to our kids, what are you thinking? Uh, and the Apostle Paul is, is saying to these people, you cannot be thinking straight. You're not using your thinking ability to reason this thing out. And that's what he means when he says, who has bewitched you? And then he says, uh, how is it that you turn back again? By the way, on the bewitched thing, in that passage, you would expect him to say, now my friends. You would expect him to say something like, now my beloved brethren. But he doesn't do that. He says, you foolish Galatians. Remember, Paul is in a war here. You foolish Galatians. And as a result, he is saying to these people, you've been manipulated. You've, you've replaced the grace of God with the law of God, and you can't do that. So then he says, how is it that you turn back again? Turn back to what? Turn back to the bondage of the law. Turn back to the bondage of the law. And if you are going to say that you are saved by keeping the law, then you are in some deep trouble. He uses three words in this text in chapter 4. He uses the word weak. So if you have a gospel by law, it is weak. It can't save you. He uses the word worthless. If you have a gospel by law, that gospel is bankrupt. It, it is of no value. And he uses the word elemental. If you have a gospel by law, it is the most basic element you can get to. See, we want people to think beyond the basic. And, and Paul wanted people to think beyond the basic. And so, and then he says this, do not be deceived in chapter 6, verse 7. And remember that word. It's the word planao. It's the word we get our English word planet from. It actually means to wander around. The idea is that it's a body in space and it wanders around not knowing where it's going. And these people are deceived. They're wandering around as though they, they don't know where they're going. And, um, uh, and he uses this passage, do not be deceived, to open up a discussion about the laws of the harvest. Remember that? And uh, he said, do not be deceived. be deceived. God is not mocked, he said. So the law of God is not going to change because you have different expectations for it. And so now he gives a closing and somewhat abrupt words at this point. Uh, and so let's go in to our outline. The first thing he, he gives a command from a weary warrior. He gives a command from a weary warrior. He says, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me. Now, first of all, let me tell you what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying they cannot speak to him. Paul is not saying they cannot speak to him. He is a man who is in the ministry. He is a man who knows 
that people in the ministry have to be available to people. People want to talk. People want to be prayed with. People want to communicate. People want to share. People want to be involved with their minister. Uh, When I came to Northwest Hills, they took me down the hallway and said I could have any office I wanted, except those that were occupied, of course. Uh, But there were several. And I said, give me the office closest to the front door. And they said, what? I said, yeah, I want the office closest to the front door. They said, there'll be a lot of commotion there. I said, that's good. I said, I want to be close to the front door so that people can come in and know they're only feet away from me so that they can stick their head in my door and say, hey, Rich, how you doing? Or they can stick their head in my door and say, hey, Rich, go fly a kite. Um, And my door is always open unless I'm with somebody. And if somebody comes in the office and I recognize their voice, I go out and greet them, shake their hand and say, how are you doing today? Because I'm in the ministry. Because everything that I am, all of my gifting, all of my talent, all of my education, all of my personality, all of my ability belongs to you. It's at your disposal. I, 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 I want everybody in the room to have my phone number. Uh, I, I, I don't ever want a do not disturb sign on my voicemail. Uh, I want, and, and Paul is not saying do not disturb. What Paul is saying is he is commanding them to knock off the nonsense. Knock it off, he says. Knock off the nonsense. No more of these problems about legalistic religion. Knock it off, he says. How many of you, how many of you are parents again? Yeah. See, because you have said things to your kids like, knock it off. You don't want me to come up there. Boy, if you do that again. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, knock off the nonsense. He's not saying, I don't want to be a minister. He's not saying, I don't want you to bother me. Just this week, I got a note from one of our people, one of our men, who says, I got a question about this. And I can hardly wait to share with him how he can deepen his relationship with God because of this question that he's asked. That's what I'm here for. The Apostle Paul is saying, knock off the nonsense. Stop this stuff. Uh, let, let, me, let me say a couple of things. And the first one is this. We have to be careful with doctrinal division within the church. Doctrinal division has set into the Galatian church. That's why Paul wrote this book, was to correct the doctrinal division. And when doctrinal division comes into a church, it'll create major problems. 
Um, now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we all have to agree on every doctrine. That's not what I'm saying. But on the doctrine of salvation, we better agree. Uh, in, in, in Portland, there was a great church, a foundational church. And they got into a doctrinal dispute that wasn't necessary. And the church split. And every other church in the area, including Gateway, benefited from that split. Because I don't know how many couples we got from that church. And the pastor left that church and went to a, and started another church in another part of town. And one family stayed in this church, and one family went with the new church, and the girl from that family and the boy from this family wanted to get married. And they said, we can't have that pastor marry us, and we can't have that pastor marry us. So what do we do? We call Rich Hagenbaugh. And Rich Hagenbaugh says, absolutely, I'm here to minister to you, and that's what we're going to do. But I'll tell you what, at that reception, you could have cut the air with a knife. And you want me to tell you another thing? The outreach of that church has gone downhill and it's never recovered. We must be careful getting into doctrinal disputes within the church. Now, I agree on the doctrine of salvation. We have to agree that we are saved by faith plus nothing. But the reality of it is there are a lot of peripheral issues that we like to fight over, and we ought not to be fighting over them. We ought to make sure that our outreach is on target, that our, our, our ministry is on target, that we are accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish on this street corner. So the second thing that I would say is make no mistake leading Christians off course spiritually is a very dangerous occupation. So uh, these people came into the Galatian church and said, no, no, you're not saved by grace. You're saved by keeping the law. You keep the law and you'll get saved. And they were manipulated, manipulated and the people followed that manipulation. And in the process of that, they were taken down the wrong path. So let's take a look at number two. The consequences of Paul's grace doctrine. And that's in a small phrase that he says this. He says, For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Circle the word brand marks. And the reason I use the the word brand marks is because, of course, that's what's in the New American Standard Version. But that is really the best word to use in this case. You know what the word is? It's an English word. It's stigma. It's stigma. I say it's an English word, but it's really not. It's a Greek word. Uh, but we've made it English. We have, we have said, oh, that thing is a stigma Or that person is a stigma, which I guess means we don't want to associate with them anymore. Or or people don't want to associate with them anymore. Uh, 
what the word really means is a branding. If you were raised on a ranch, you branded cattle. That's a stigma. That's what the word actually means. And that's the way it's used here. Paul was branded. Now, we say that Paul was once proud of the mark of circumcision that he had. Let me read part of this for you, starting in the second sentence. He says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So the Apostle Paul was proud of the fact that he was a Jew. But that's not the mark he's talking about in this particular passage. Now, Paul now glorified in these scars he received, in the suffering he had endured in the service of Jesus Christ. What do they look like? Well, let me read for you out of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 28. You might want to write that passage on your outline. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28. Listen to what he says. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the sea. I have been on frequent journeys. And then listen to this liturgy of dangers that he went through. Dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my countrymen, the Jews. Dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the forest or the wilderness. Dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says on top of all of that in verse 28, I have upon me the concern of all the churches. So not only is there this physical danger, there's emotional stress on the Apostle Paul. At this point. And he's pulling his hair out. And I have to imagine. That from the lashings. And the beatings with rods. That the apostle Paul. Had scars on his body. And those are the brandings. That Paul is talking about. Here. They are the brandings. That he's talking about. When he says. That he bears the brand marks. Now. The Galatians would have understood this. As soon as he used that word, uh, he, they would have understood exactly what he meant. As soon as, he, as soon as they saw the word stigma, they would have known. Because stigma was all around them. It was, first of all, uh, on the servants in the temple, they were branded with the name of their deity. And they were proud of this branding. It was attached to them for life. They couldn't get rid of it. They were, they were branded with a hot iron 
with the identity of the deity that they served. Slaves were branded with the names of their masters. If you were a slave and you had a master, you would have this branding on you telling you who the master was and telling everybody who saw you who the master was. Generals, uh, I'm sorry, soldiers were branded uh, with the names of their generals. In fact, if you've seen the movie Gladiator, you know that after the emperor is murdered and his weak and insipid son takes over and uh, Russell Crowe, the gladiator who is, who is uh, cast out and realizes that his family has been murdered and he enters into slavery all over again. There's a scene in the, in the dungeon when he is using a, a sharp rock or piece of slate to scrape off the tattoo off of his arm of who his general was. And one of his friends says, Are, is that the name of your God? He said, no. He doesn't really say, but it's, it's the name of his emperor or his general. This was common in the Roman world. And the Apostle Paul was saying something to the Galatians that they could understand easily. And when it comes down to the end of everything, when you come down to the last verse, In the book of Galatians, Paul is saying, I don't think you should obey me. I don't think you should listen to me because I have apostolic authority. I think you should listen to me because I bear the brand marks of the Redeemer. And there can be nothing stronger than that. Uh, Let me say a couple of things. First of all, Sin also brands a person. Uh, you know, I have some inner branding because of sin, especially before I became a Christian. Um, uh, some of you have some marks on or in you because of sin. Let me say something very important here. Because you become a Christian, because you get redeemed, doesn't mean the marks go away. Hear me. We often bear the consequences of sin for our entire lifetime, even though we are redeemed and born again. Now, the more we grow in Christ, the closer we come to him, the better we may handle those. But that doesn't mean they're going to go away. They're here to stay. And sin will brand us. If we could only communicate to our children, there are consequences to these things that you do. There will always be consequences. And you will carry them for a lifetime. So the first thing is, I would say to you, is that in the mind, in the body, in the emotion, there is the possibility that we carry the marks of sin. And then let me say this. Something is seriously wrong if we are ashamed to own him who owns us. Just as, sure, just as surely as the Apostle Paul bore the marks 
the branding of Jesus on his body, we ought to bear the same branding. Maybe it's not a mark from a rod. But everybody who knows us, everybody around us, ought to know we belong to Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, Howard Hendricks said, we live in a world that is screaming for answers and the Christians are stuttering. See, we live in a world that needs to know that Jesus Christ is alive and can redeem them. I mean, look at our world. Have you looked lately? I agree with I agree with Pastor Kurt. Every one of us ought to vote. But I think that no matter which one you're voting for, no matter which side you're on, you're going to vote holding your nose. Um, Between services today, uh, little Emma Morris and I are good friends. And Emma came to me, um, and she had her boot in her hand. And she handed it to me. And uh, she said, uh, I said, Emma, do you want me to help you put your boot back on? She said, no, smell it. (laughs) I said, smell it? She said, smell it. I said, you want me to put my nose in that? She said, yeah. Well, I knew what she wanted. So I took took a big whiff and I went, and it just made her day. You have to understand, we live in a world where you can't trust anybody. We have become an immoral nation. We live in a world where babies can be murdered after they are born. Do you understand that? We live in a world where homosexuality is so pronounced that we will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah, someone said. And the result is... God needs people who will bear the brand. I understand that we want our Christianity to be sophisticated. But I think sometimes we sophisticate ourselves right out of ministry. I think sometimes we sophisticate ourselves right out of showing the world the only answer to what it needs. And that is, you can't Stop people from shooting people by taking away the guns. You stop it by having a heart change in the people. I don't know what the what other answer there is. Take away the knives. Take away the cars. I don't know. I'm just saying that the reality of this is that, in fact, we have to find ourselves in our church, in our community, Bearing the brand of Jesus Christ. And if we get a new pastor and he comes into a church that won't bear the brand, he's going to be wasting his time. So I think that it would be really bad if we are ashamed to own the one who owns us. And Paul, giving this concept of the stigma I say to you, are you a stigma? Or are you totally accepted by everybody out there 
do they think you agree on everything the way they think? Point three. The commendation of them by the working of grace. I'm sorry. Sometimes I get to meddling rather than preaching. Um, uh, the The commendation of them to the working of grace. Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Then he uses the word brethren, Adelphoi. It's, you know, the word Adelphoi. Philadelphia. Phil coming from phileo, meaning uh, friendship, love, and Adelphoi, meaning brotherly or brethren. So brotherly love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And uh, it's interesting, this word Adelphoi, it has to be read in a particular way. It, it's, it's not read this way. It's not read, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. That's not what he's saying. He takes this word Adelphoi and he puts it in a unique, what we call emphatic position in the sentence. It's almost separate from everything else. So he would read, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brethren! (laughs) It's like, I want you to get this. Uh, And notice that he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Unique terminology for Paul. He usually says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Or be on you. In this case, be with your spirit. The very part of you that is closest to God. That's what we want to be moved. And he concentrates that on confirming again that they are the brethren, that they are born again, that they are headed for heaven, that this false doctrine hasn't changed their position, even though it might have changed some of their views. And then he ends with Amen. Amen. The only other book he closes with the book Amen is the book of Romans. And it's sort of like Paul is saying, you know how when you pray and you say amen at the end, what you're saying is, God, everything that I've said up to this point may come true. That's what amen means. So be it. Let it be. And the Apostle Paul is saying, everything I've said in this book up to this point, it let it be true. So be it. And Paul ends by saying, this is grace. So after the storm and stress that is in this letter comes peace and benediction. It is grace that mattered to Paul, not the law. It is grace that mattered to Paul, not the law. No more needs to be said because that says it all. The grace of God. So when you go to communion this morning, what should you do? First of all, probably what you do every time you do communion, what I do every day, I thank God for His grace. It's hard for me. uh, If you had known me as a young man, you would know why grace is so important to me. 
So thank God for his grace. Thank God that you are saved by grace plus nothing. And secondly, I would say, ask yourself and ask God, do you have the mark? Do you have the brand? You might ask God something like this. God, is there some place, a point in my life, where I'm not showing the brand the way I ought to? Is there a place in my work or my school or my home where the brand is not as prevalent as it ought to be? Show me that, God, and I promise you, I will show the brand. And in the process of that, God will bless you and in the process, bless our entire church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for the fact that you have done it. You redeemed us because you chose to. It was all what you did. It wasn't what we did. We didn't do anything to get saved. You did it all. You chose us. You sent your son. He executed this salvation by dying on the cross for us. Under your instructions, God, thank you for your grace. We could not have saved ourselves. On our best day, on my best day, Father, I could not please you. So thank you, Father, for your grace. And God, today... May we be a people of the mark. May we be a people with the brand. In the world in which we live, Father, use us to make change. Use us, Father, to bring about a world that recognizes there is a difference. And we pray, Father, that in the process of all of this, You will make us walk more closely with you. And in so doing, Father, make our church be closer to you and enable us to reach deeper into our communities and our homes and our families because of that. So, Father, we give ourselves to you. We ask you to use us for your glory. And again, Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.